The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to speak upon the nature of consciousness and dreams, and how the two things relate together, and uh, what the effects of one are on the other, and where they come from. Uh, tonight, we'll be reading from a book called Dreams What They Are and How They Are Caused by C.W. Leadbeater, third edition, revised and enlarged published by the Theosophical Publishing Society, London, England, 1903. And this copy actually is derived from the library of the Order of the Star in the East. Uh, so uh, this book is a rather old text, but uh, it explains things about human consciousness and uh, about uh, the nature of the dream state that you don't hear in other places. Uh, so... A lot of times we have to go to uh, some of these authors in the theosophical circles or various other places that are similar to get some good information about some of this stuff. And it's, it's astounding just how much that we're not taught in the modern era uh, about, uh, in particular, the, the human body and the human brain and the human mind and the human soul, all of these things that are interconnected in many ways. Uh, and it's, it's just astounding to see. These things that are forgotten by modern society, especially here in the Western world, in Western culture, where much of this is not really considered at all. Uh, so it's always interesting to delve into these topics and look at what's been written and what some of these people within the bounds and confines of these various secret societies knew and understood that we do not. And uh, that's that's a very important uh, uh, concept here because there's this knowledge gap between the people that run this place and the rest of us and we need to bridge that gap and in order to do that we need to think outside the box and question everything we've ever been taught and learn to think in more philosophical terms uh, drawing back to some of these older ideas <coughs> excuse me some of like the old alchemical sciences and things that were known right to older generations to older peoples uh so that's wherein a lot of this comes in uh so we're going to get right into the reading here and uh it's an interesting read and i may pause on you know my regular intervals here just to add some commentary to some of this uh and a lot of this uh, stems from uh the ideas of the theosophical society or theosophical thought uh, so some of the language they use in here may be geared more towards somebody that's familiar with the precepts of theosophy. So if there's anything that comes up that uh, is particularly confusing, I may uh, do a little side trail just to try to explain it. Uh, but I don't think we'll encounter too much of that. It's, it's pretty straightforward for the most part. <coughs> Excuse me once again. <coughs> 
But let's get into it here. Chapter 1, Introductory. Many of the subjects with which our theosophical studies bring us into contact are so far removed from the experiences and interests of everyday life that, while we feel drawn towards them by an attraction which increases in geometrical progression as we come to know more of them and understand them better, we are yet conscious, at the back of our minds, as it were, of a faint sense of unreality, or at least unpracticality, while we are dealing with them. When we read of the formation of the solar system, or even the rings and rounds of our own planetary chain, we cannot but feel that, interesting though this is as abstract study, useful as it is in showing us how man has become what we find him to be, it nevertheless associates itself only indirectly with the life we are living here and now. No such objection as this, however, can be taken to our present subject. All readers of these lines have dreamed. Probably many of them are in the habit of dreaming frequently, and they may therefore be interested in an endeavor to account for dream phenomena by the aid of the light thrown upon them by investigation along theosophic lines. The most convenient method in which we can arrange the various branches of our subject will perhaps be the following. First, to consider rather carefully the mechanism, physical, etheric, and astral, by means of which impressions are conveyed to our consciousness. Secondly, to see how the consciousness in its turn affects and uses this mechanism. Thirdly, to note the condition both of the consciousness and its mechanism during sleep. And fourthly, to inquire how the various kinds of dreams which men experience are thereby produced. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks, because this is an important distinction here. Okay, so we're talking about what is the mechanism of dreaming, right? That's what's being discussed here. And he breaks this down. Uh, this is C.W. Leadbeater is the gentleman's name. He breaks this mechanism down into various forms here and various, uh, uh, I guess we could say, subsystems. So the mechanism at play, first, it has a physical mechanism. Secondly, there's an etheric mechanism. And thirdly, there's an astral mechanism, which affects our not only our consciousness, but our consciousness in the dream state, right, uh, when we are sleeping. So... Uh, that being the case, he's going to break these down, and we'll see uh, some distinctions here as to uh, what's being referred to. And this uh, requires you to take a step back and think of things in a different way. Uh, much of what we know about ourselves has been misdescribed to us. Uh, many of these things have been discarded by modern culture, and we accept only the physical model of things. Uh, so with that being the case, we lose sight of other aspects of uh, what uh, many of these secret society groups claim to know or claim that the truth is that not only do we have a physical body, we also have uh, attached with the physical body an ethereal body and an astral body and also what they would call a mind body or mental body or uh, what the theosophists refer to as the ego, right? And you'll come across that term in many of the secret society teachings. So Man is not only a threefold being, but also a four-square being, because we exist on all these different planes simultaneously. We exist here in the physical. We have a an etheric body, uh, which is the etheric is a type of subplane alleged to be uh, of the physical plane. 
uh, we have an astral form, an astral body, which is also called by many of these in the secret society groups, the desire body. And then there's also this mental body, right, uh, which they call the ego, which is, you know, the ultimate uh, individuation of the person. Uh, so this is uh, what makes us who we are. Uh, and this is what they teach within the secret society groups. And, uh, you know, it seems to me there are some uh, some true aspects to the things that they teach at certain levels. But you have to learn to take it with a grain of salt because there's really no way to prove this in any uh, type of uh, meaningful way in the modern era, especially uh, in the culture we live in. People don't want to try to regard these things or they, they see them as being evil or misleading or, or various things like that. We've been taught to shun these types of ideologies. So that being the case, uh, we, we could see that, uh, you know, we have to take a step back in order to understand some of the mechanisms at play here for this whole experience. Uh, so let's read on here. As I am writing in the main for students of theosophy, I shall feel myself at liberty to use, without detailed explanation, the ordinary theosophical terms with which I may safely assume them to be familiar, since otherwise my little book would far exceed its allotted limits. Should it, however, fall into the hands of any to whom the occasional use of such terms constitutes a difficulty, I can only apologize to them and refer them for these preliminary explanations to any elementary theosophical work. And he names several theosophical works here. Uh, that people could read to understand better some of the definitions of theosophy here. So I'm going to pause there. I didn't come across anything in here that's uh, overly uh, complicated for anybody uh, who hasn't encountered any theosophical works before or anything like that. <coughs> but if there is something I, I feel the need to expound upon like I already have, uh, I will do that just to try and make sure everybody understands what's being said here. But let's continue the reading here. The mechanism. First, number one, physical. First, then, as to the physical part of the mechanism, we have in our bodies a great central axis of nervous matter ending in the brain, and from this a network of nerve threads radiates in every direction through the body. It is these nerve threads, according to modern scientific theory, which by their vibrations convey all impressions from without to the brain, and the latter, upon receipt of these impressions, translates them into sensations or perceptions. So that if I put my hand upon some object and find it to be hot, it is really not my hand that feels, but my brain which is acting upon information transmitted to it by the vibrations running along its telegraph wires, the nerve threads. It is important also to bear in mind that all the nerve threads of the body are the same in constitution, and that the special bundle of them that we call the optic nerve, which conveys to the brain impressions made upon the retina of the eye, and so enables us to see, differs from the nerve threads of the hand or the foot only in the fact that through long ages of evolution it has been specialized to receive and transmit most readily one particular small set of rapid vibrations which thus become visible to us as light. 
The same remark holds good with reference to our other sense organs. The auditory, the olfactory, or the gustatory nerves differ from one another and from the rest only in this specialization. They are essentially the same, and they all do their respective work in exactly the same manner by the transmission of vibrations to the brain. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Remember, he's speaking in terms from 1903, which is when this book was published. Uh, So... You know, perhaps it sounds a little primitive as to the explanation or descriptions here of the human body. But bear in mind, uh, these were very learned men uh, who wrote a lot of these things, right? Uh, They understood something, uh, something primal in how the human body functions and that there are other aspects of it that are unseen, right? Other aspects of the operation of the human body that are unseen, not just this physical meat suit, so to say. Uh, So, with that being said, uh, the things he describes here uh, are, they may sound a little off to the modern ear, uh, but keep in mind, and this is coming at it from the perspective of 1903 science. Uh, So, with that being said, he hasn't said anything that doesn't hold up, even even so. Uh, But there's other aspects that he describes here later as we get going uh, that uh, will, I think, resonate with you. Because it seems to hold true, and it has more weight to it than the strict physical sense of thinking of things. So let's continue on here. Now this brain of ours, which is thus the great center of our nervous system, is very readily affected by slight variations in our general health, and most especially by any which involve a change in the circulation of the blood through it. When the flow of blood through the vessels of the head is normal and regular, the brain, and therefore the whole nervous system, is at liberty to function in an orderly and efficient manner. But any alteration in this normal circulation, either as to quantity, quality, or speed, immediately produces a corresponding effect on the brain, and through it on the nerves throughout the body. If, for example, too much blood is supplied to the brain, congestion of the vessels takes place, and irregularity in its action is at once produced. If too little, the brain, and therefore the nervous system, becomes first irritable and then lethargic. The quality of the blood supplied is also of great importance. As it courses through the body, it has two principal functions to perform, to supply oxygen and to provide nutrition to the different organs of the body. And if it be unable adequately to fulfill either of these functions, a certain disorganization will follow. If the supply of oxygen to the brain be deficient, it becomes overcharged with carbon dioxide, and heaviness and lethargy very shortly supervene. A common example of this is the feeling of dullness and sleepiness, which frequently overtakes one in a crowded and ill-ventilated room. Owing to the exhaustion of the oxygen in the room by the continued respiration of so large a number of people, the brain does not receive its due modicum, and therefore is unable to do its work properly. Again, the speed with which the blood flows through the vessels affects the action of the brain. If it be too great, it produces fever. If too slow, then again lethargy is caused. It is obvious, therefore, that our brain, through which, be it remembered, all physical impressions must pass, may very easily be disturbed and more or less hindered in the due performance of its functions by causes apparently trivial, causes to which we should probably often pay no attention whatever, even during waking hours, of which we should almost certainly be entirely ignorant during sleep. 
Before we pass on, one other peculiarity of this physical mechanism must be noted, and that it is remarkable it's sorry, that is its remarkable tendency to repeat automatically vibrations to which it is accustomed to respond. And I'm gonna pause for a moment right there, folks. Remember that. He's talking about vibrations and how um, the brain will or this mechanism within the brain and the body will respond to these vibrations that it's accustomed to responding to. Uh, this is resonant frequency. That's what this is called. This is a proven commodity in uh, our modern science. It's a proven thing. Uh, the earth resonates at a certain frequency. Human beings also resonate at certain frequencies. And uh, sometimes we could get our frequencies retuned and it will affect our mood and uh, our physiology in certain ways. Uh, so keep that in mind as we continue on. But let's continue reading here. It is this property of the brain that are to be attributed all these all those bodily habits and tricks of manner which are entirely independent of the will and are often so difficult to conquer. And as will presently be seen, it plays an even more important part during sleep than it does during our waking life. And I'm going to pause right there. So... <clears throat> He's talking about your body. This mechanism within your body will sense different types of vibrations that it's accustomed to responding to. And it'll notice changes in those vibrations and it will react to those. And this could affect us in many different ways. Uh, you know, and this happens independent of our consciousness of it or our awareness of it or of our will, right? Uh, so this causes an unconscious response within us. Do you see how uh, something as simple as changing a frequency of something can affect somebody without them knowing about it? Uh, this is exactly what's being shown here. There's a mechanism within the human body, within the human form, that responds to these different types of frequencies. So, you know, remember that as we move forward here. Uh, and especially when it uh, comes to sleep, right? Because he does say that it's, it's an even more important part of our life during sleep than it is during our waking life. So keep that in mind, our, our receptiveness to different frequencies. Uh, that That is an important concept here. So let's continue on. Number two, etheric. It is not alone through the brain to which we have hitherto been referring, however, that impressions may be received by the man. Almost exactly coextensive with and interpenetrating his visible form is his etheric double, formerly called in theosophical literature the linga sharira, and that also has a brain which is really no less physical than the other, though composed of matter in a condition finer than the gaseous. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So essentially, the theosophical society, as well as some of these other uh, old mystery schools and secret societies, they describe that uh, your etheric body, they call it the etheric double or the human double, uh, this form is very much a part of you just as much as your physical form. And the etheric exists as a subplane of the physical plane. Uh, so therefore, it's a slightly less dense form of matter, how they say here. Uh, so it's not something that we see or experience on a visible level in our physical reality. It, it happens underneath the surface, right? It's kind of like hidden underneath the surface. And this falls back on ideas of the visible and the invisible, and that there are invisible forces at play and at work here in this world 
Uh, and this, it, you know, aligns with that type of a teaching. So uh, they claim that uh, you can receive sensations through this etheric form as well. And, you know, it, this happens on an unconscious type level for the most part. But let's continue reading on here. If we examine <clears throat> with psychic faculty the body of a newly born child, we shall find it permeated not only by astral matter of every degree of density, but also by the different grades of etheric matter. And if we take the trouble to trace these inner bodies backwards to their origin, we find that it is of the latter that the etheric double, the mold upon which the physical body is built up, is formed by the agents of the lords of karma. Well, the astral matter has been gathered together by the descending ego, not of course consciously, but automatically as he passed through the astral plane, and is in fact merely the development in that plane of tendencies whose seeds have been lying dormant in him during his experiences in the heaven world, because on that level it was impossible that they could germinate for want of the grade of matter necessary for their expression. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. I know this sounds like a lot of mumbo-jumbo to a lot of folks out there, but essentially what they're saying is uh, when they're referring to the ego, this would be uh, the actual essence of uh, the divine spark in each of one of us, our, our uh, fractal uh, nature, right, of, of this divine spark, of who we are, our individuality, right, our individual intelligence existing on this mental plane, so to say, uh, that, that's what they refer to as the ego, and the ego steps down takes on astral matter and takes on etheric matter and then takes on physical matter in that kind of descending order to manifest here in this world. And as he puts on these different garments, as they're referred to sometimes, uh, you know, you could understand it's a stepping down process, right? And consciousness separates into these various types of um, forms, so to say, in a lot of the teachings here. Uh, so it's kind of hard to describe, but uh, I think you kind of get the idea here. So let's continue reading on. Okay, now, this etheric double has often been called the vehicle of the human life ether or vital force called in Sanskrit prana. And anyone who has developed the psychic faculties can see exactly how this is so. He will see the solar life principle almost colorless, though in intensely luminous and active, which is constantly poured into the Earth's atmosphere by the sun. He will see how the etheric part of his spleen and the exercise of its wonderful function absorbs this universal life and specializes it into prana so that it may be more readily assimilable by his body. How it then courses all over the body, running along every nerve thread in tiny globules of lovely rosy light, causing the glow of life and health and activity to penetrate every atom of the etheric double. And how, when the rose-colored particles have been absorbed, the superfluous life ether finally radiates from the body in every direction as bluish-white light. I'm going to pause for a second there, folks. Once again, it sounds like a lot of nonsensical mumbo-jumbo, but they are, there are actually people that claim when they have this clairvoyant-type sight or this sight into spiritual realms, they could see these things, and uh, some people claim to be able to see auras. And it's the same kind of thing here. 
but they don't quite recognize what they're looking at. Uh, some of these people claim to have been able to categorize different facets of these different realms that they could see into these spiritual planes and uh, break down these different ideas and, uh, you know, explain what their observations are. And that's what uh, Mr. Leadbeater here is trying to impart in this way. So he's talking about uh, how uh, <clears throat> the etheric part of the spleen of the human body is a very important uh, thing here. Uh, this, this aligns with the chakras in various teachings as well. Uh, so the spleen would be uh, your chakra that I believe that falls in the solar plexus region, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's the chakra that that would align with. Uh, but at any rate, uh, this is one of the sense organs of sorts uh, within the etheric realm where you can, uh, your body can react or respond to information uh, through that etheric type realm. Uh, or that's at least what the claim is here. Right? And like I said, some of this stuff you have to take with a grain of salt because there's really no way to prove or disprove any of this stuff. Uh, but this is what they teach. All right. So regardless of whether you believe this stuff or not, uh, there's people in positions of power in this world that very much do, and the things they do to act upon these things will affect all of us. And I do find some value in some of these teachings because it acknowledges a spiritual side of things that our modern reality does not acknowledge and I think it's information that's been lost to us. And I think it's been hidden from us on purpose uh, because it can be very empowering to know some of these things. Uh, so with that being said, I think it's worth looking at, right? It's worth considering. It's worth observing. So uh, that's why I'm doing this reading because I've always been interested in dreams and, uh, you know, human consciousness and the different states thereof uh, and understanding those things a little better. So... Uh, you know, we're going to continue on here. If he examines further into the action of this life ether, he will soon see reason to believe that the transmission of impressions to the brain depends rather upon its regular flow along the etheric portion of the nerve threads than upon the mere vibration of the particles of their denser and visible portion, as is commonly supposed. Going to pause there. So essentially what he's saying is people will respond to information more in the etheric than in the physical. And and this is what the speculation is. Like first, the etheric uh, detects uh, this information before the physical. So therefore, uh, there's a mechanism at play here where the etheric recognizes something for what it is before your physical senses do. And it's a very small, minute fraction of time between that happening. But uh, this is what they claim. Uh, so let's read on. <clears throat> it would take too much of our space to detail all the experiments by which this theory is established, but the indication of one or two of the simplest will suffice to show the lines upon which they run. When a finger becomes entirely numbed with cold, it is incapable of feeling, and the same phenomenon of insensibility may readily be produced at will by a mesmerizer, who by a few passes over the arm of his subject will bring it into a condition in which it may be pricked with a needle or burnt with, by the flame of a candle without the slightest sensation of pain being experienced. Now why does the subject feel nothing in either of those two cases? 
The nerve threads are still there, and though in the first case it might be contended that their action was paralyzed by cold and by the absence of the blood from the vessels, this certainly cannot be the reason in the second case where the arm retains its normal temperature and the blood circulates as usual. If we call in the aid of the clairvoyant, we shall be able to get somewhat nearer to a real explanation, for he will tell us that the reason why the frozen finger seems dead and the blood is unable to circulate through its vessels is because the rosy life ether is no longer coursing along the nerve threads. For we must remember that though matter in the etheric condition is invisible to ordinary sight, it is still purely physical and therefore can be affected by the action of heat or cold. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So remember, when they're speaking about the etheric, like I said, it's kind of a, a hidden subplane within the physical plane. This is kind of how they teach. It's just under the surface. It's invisible. It's the invisible portion, the invisible intelligent portion of the physical world in which we live that causes different actions and effects. This is the claim that they make. Uh, so we can see here that it's, it's basically, it is affected by things in the physical as well. Uh, that's what he's saying here. So let's read on here and see what he says about uh, the second case there. In the second case, he will tell us that when the mesmerizer makes the passes by which he renders the subject's arm insensible, what he really does is to pour his own nerve ether, or magnetism as it is often called, into the arm, thereby driving back for the time that of the subject. The arm is still warm and living because there is still life ether coursing through it, but since it is no longer the subject's own specialized life ether and is therefore not in rapport with his brain, it conveys no information to that brain, and consequently there is no sense of feeling in the arm. From this it seems evident that though it is not absolutely the life ether itself which does the work of conveying impressions from without to a man's brain, its presence as specialized by the man himself is certainly necessary for their due transmission along the nerve threads. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. So essentially what he's saying is there's a type of magnetic force, and this was studied by Mesmer. Uh, he made this famous. Mesmer was a, an initiate of various secret orders, and uh, he studied the uh, science of magnetism and electricity and what he called animal magnetism and its different effects uh, of the human body and the animal body and things like that. And he defined many, very many things uh, about this principle, the magnetic principle, uh, which actually, when you really delve down the trail, you find that uh, the electromagnetic force is the motivating uh, force of just about everything in our reality. Uh, this is one of the great mysteries to be uh, observed and to be, uh, uh, you know, utilized in many ways. This is what needs to be studied. Uh, so everything has an electromagnetic disposition to it. And the same holds true. Uh, I guess in the etheric plane as well, you could say. Uh, this is a, a connection because, uh, you know, ether, when you look at the, the scientific viewpoint of the old ether physics, ether is in and of itself a medium in which we exist. It's a, a, uh, a substructure, a substrate upon which everything is built. And that's actually the claim that they make. This etheric double, this etheric body that we have, is the substrate of the physical body. It's the framework 
right? It's the frame upon which the physical body is built. That's what they claim, all right? Uh, so uh, when you look at it from that perspective and take a step back and try and view these things from that different perspective, you can understand a little better. Uh, that's what I'm here to do. I just want people to understand this stuff. It's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, it's nothing to, uh, you know, uh, throw off as, oh, it's evil. It's information, right? And understanding information is what it's all about. So especially if this is the information that uh, those people who run this place understand and act upon, isn't it necessary to know what it is they're doing and why? Uh, especially because that will affect you in some way, shape, or form. So this is to help people understand. This is the things that the controllers of this world firmly believe and act upon. Uh, so, you know, when we look at this stuff, it gives us kind of an, a better overall view of things. And I think there's some value to be found in this. Uh, that's why we're going over this, and I, I find it the whole study fascinating. This gives us different uh, types of viewpoints into human consciousness, what it is, and, uh, you know, ways in which uh, these controllers of this place use these concepts to manipulate us. Uh, so if you're completely ignorant of all of this stuff, well, then guess what? You have no defense against that. That's why it's important to learn this stuff and not be afraid of it. Uh, a lot of that uh, is a misnomer that's been placed by this, these power structures in society, in, in the world, these dark occultists that run things. They want us to be ignorant of all this information. They don't want us to understand it. They want us to be, uh, you know, put off by it and to think that uh, it's harmful in some way to know these things or to look at these things. When that's not the case, like I said, it's information. Uh, understand it as that. If you find value in it, well, then that's good. And if you don't find value in it, keep it in the back of your mind. Because, uh, like I said, there's people in positions of power in this world that take this kind of knowledge and use it in ways against us. So if you understand what it is they believe they're doing with it, uh, you have better defenses against those things that they're doing. So, anyway... <coughs> Excuse me, not to get too hung up on the sidetrack there. Let's continue the reading here. Now, just as any change in the circulation of the blood affects the receptivity of the denser brain matter and thus modifies the reliability of the impressions derived through it, so the condition of the etheric portion of the brain is affected by any change in the volume or the velocity of these life currents. And I'm going to pause there. So essentially... What uh, Mr. Leadbeater here is pointing out is the human brain, essentially, this is the tool through which our perceptions come to us. This is the thing that deciphers our perceptions. He's saying there's also an etheric part of this that helps in that process and can perceive things that the physical brain doesn't perceive on the, on the surface. Uh, so we have things like intuition, and a lot of this uh, falls back on these different ideas of the etheric and the astral and the various other things that they talk about here. These different layers of which uh, we exist in, in many. Uh, so that being the case, there's different things that affect all these systems in different ways. Uh, so the acknowledgement is there. It's, this is about perception, right? what your body perceives and how it perceives. The brain is the filter through which our perceptions come. Uh, so that being the case, 
It controls, if you could control the mechanism that uh, allows us to have these perceptions, you could control our perceptions, right? Uh, that's essentially what the underlying meaning is here. So if you could affect perception through some type of an etheric type way, uh, that will that will translate into the physical at some point, uh, won't it? So th these are these are important ideas to keep in mind as we continue reading through here. But let's get back to the reading. For example, when the quantity of a nerve ether specialized by the spleen falls for any reason below the average, physical weakness and weariness are immediately felt, and, if under these circumstances it also happens that the speed of its circulation is increased, the man becomes supersensitive, highly irritable, nervous, and perhaps even hysterical. While in such a condition, he is often more sensitive to physical impressions than he would be normally. And so it often occurs that a person suffering from ill health sees visions or apparitions which are imperceptible to his most more robust neighbor. If, on the other hand, the volume and velocity of the life ether are both reduced at the same time, the man experiences intense languor, becomes less sensitive to outside influences, and has a general feeling of being too weak to care much about what happens to him. It must be remembered also that the etheric matter of which we have spoken and the denser matter ordinarily recognized as belonging to the brain are really both parts of one and the same physical organism, and that, therefore, neither can be affected without instantly producing some reaction on the other. Consequently, there can be no certainty that impressions will be correctly transmitted through the mechanism unless both portions of it are functioning quite normally. Any irregularity in either part may very readily so dull or disturb its receptivity as to produce blurred or distorted images of whatever is presented to it. Furthermore, as will be presently be explained, it is infinitely more liable to such aberrations during sleep than when in the waking state. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to pause there for a moment. So, uh, what he's saying here is there are portions of the physical brain and physical body, as well as forms of, or different portions of the ethereal body that have some of these sensory perceptions. And that uh, if this mechanism, which operates in both uh, of these different modalities, in either of these modalities is somehow skewed, it could skew our perception of things. So uh, if it skews or distorts our perception of things, would this not explain why we have things like cognitive dissonance? Why some people will be able to see something and others won't. Like, for example... Uh, if you could see that uh, the push for the vaccine during the whole corona narrative uh, was <laughs> a bad thing and others didn't, well, is it because there's some type of a disturbance in the mechanism at play? Uh, maybe on an etheric level that, uh, you know, allow doesn't allow them to see things with the same lens that we do? And these are all questions that we have. I mean, it's, it is it is a plausible explanation for things. But like I said, a lot of this stuff you do have to take with a grain of salt. Because there's really no true way to prove or disprove any of this. 
But these people in positions of power in this world, these dark occultists that run things, absolutely believe this stuff and will uh, do things to act upon those beliefs. And the things they do will affect us, so it's important to understand. But let's move on to the third part of this mechanism, of which uh, Mr. Leadbeater's talking. And number three, the astral. Still, another mechanism that we have to take into account is the astral body, often called the desire body. As its name implies, this vehicle is composed exclusively of astral matter and is, in fact, the expression of the man on the astral plane, just as his physical body is the expression of him on the lower levels of the physical plane. <coughs> Excuse me, and I'm going to pause there for a minute, folks. So remember, all right, and, and pay attention to the language that's used in some of these descriptions. So they're saying the uh, astral body is the expression of the man on the astral plane, whereas the physical body is the expression of a man on the lower levels of the physical plane in which we dwell and we live, this physical reality which we live, right? So this is an expression. It's a vehicle, an, an expression of what we really are or who we really are. Right? It's a translation made specially for this plane of existence uh, and through which we have our being. Uh, it's kind of like an avatar, so to say, if you're looking for uh, better terms here uh, to understand some of these ideas. So this would be our physical avatar, and they say we also have an astral avatar that exists on that plane. And it, even though it's all tied together in one uh, body or personage or identity, so to say, um, we exist across these different layers, these different planes, uh, simultaneously. So that's one of the things to keep in mind here. So this is what they're saying, and this comes down to another term that needs to really be understood and uh, really thought deeply about that some of these different secret societies use. And that would be the term image. So this is our image in the physical plane, right? This expression of us in the physical plane, our physical body. This is our image in the physical plane. And we also likewise have different images within the ethereal, within the astral, and upon the mental plane. The image. So keep that in mind when you hear the term image. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically of different uh, things like uh, the changing images of man, that book that is uh, so critical to understanding the way that they use mythology and archetype to steer public behavior. Uh, it's about the image, right? It's projecting the image. So uh, essentially the ego or the, the mental body on the mental plane is the projector that projects our image down through the steps of these other planes, through the astral plane to the ethereal plane and in the physical plane, right? The lower levels of the physical plane, because the upper levels of the physical plane would uh, translate to the etheric uh, when you're talking about uh, what these secret society groups and stuff teach. Uh, so this is what they're talking about. It's the projection of the image from the ego, right? This would be the, the real you, the I am that they talk about in scripture. That's what it's referring to, the ego, I am. The thing that within us which identifies as who we are, right? Which makes us special, which makes us an individual, which makes us a fractal of uh, the consciousness of the divine spark. Uh, but let's continue on. I don't want to get too hung up on side notes here. Uh, let's continue where we leave off. Okay. 
Indeed, it will save the theosophical student much trouble if he will learn to regard those different vehicles simply as the actual manifestation of the ego on their respective planes. If he understands, for example, that it is the causal body, sometimes called the auric egg, which is the real vehicle of the reincarnating ego and is inhabited by him as long as he remains upon the plane, which is his true home, the higher levels of the mental world but that when he descends into the lower levels he must in order to be able to function upon them clothe himself in their matter and that the matter which he thus attracts to himself furnishes his mind body and i'm going to pause there folks <coughs> so what they're saying is uh, the causal body sometimes called the auric egg this would be the equivalent of the mental body or the ego as we were saying uh, so that's what we're talking about. So this manifests in the lower levels, so to say, the lower uh, planes, the astral, the etheric, and uh, the physical here. This manifests by him taking on a different type of clothing, like but taking on the matter of that plane and forming a, a an image of himself, a garment of sorts. And this is exactly what they're talking about when they're talking about the golden fleece right? This is what it is. It's an allegory for this thing. It's all about uh, this auric egg idea and how it uh, steps down through these different worlds, so to say, uh, into the physical, into physical manifestation. <coughs> so with that being said, I mean, you, you could see uh, the allegory of different types of clothing here, of clothing himself. That's what they're talking about. Uh, so where did we leave off here? Okay. Similarly, descending into the astral plane, he forms his astral or desire body out of its matter, though of course still retaining all the other bodies. And on his still further descent to the, this lowest plane of all, the physical body is formed in the mists of the auric egg, which thus contains the entire man. This astral vehicle is even more sensitive to external impressions than the gross and etheric bodies, for it is itself the seat of all desires and emotions, the connecting link through which alone the ego can collect experiences from physical life. It is peculiarly susceptible to the influence of passing thought currents, and when the mind is not actively controlling it, it is perpetually receiving these stimuli from without and eagerly responding to them. Gonna pause there, folks. <coughs> this is a big idea. Okay, this is the idea that uh, other thought forms, thoughts exist out there, floating around, out there in the ether, so to say, and that they could affect you on an unconscious level uh, because your astral form is more susceptible to picking up on these if especially if you're unaware of your astral form and you're unaware of your of this stuff so uh this uh harkens back to ideas like the hundredth monkey idea right or how memes work and catch on the alchemical meme right uh, all of these different ideas, this is how this works. This is how uh, thoughts seem to manifest at different times in different places through different people. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that's, that's hard to explain. But uh, this gives you a mechanism by which that works. And it's through this uh, astral phase of mankind, so to say. But uh, 
Let's continue reading. I know a lot of this stuff may sound like a bridge too far for some people. And like I said, you have to take a lot of this with a grain of salt. But it does give plausible explanations for things. And I think it's important to understand this information, uh, regardless of whether you consider it to be true information or not. Uh, so with that being the case, we're going to continue reading. And uh, where did I leave off? Let me find the spot here. All right. This mechanism also, like the others, is more readily influenced during the sleep of the physical body. That this is so is shown by many observations, a fair example of them being a case recently reported to the writer in which a man who had been a drunkard was describing the difficulties in the way of his reformation. He declared that after a long period of total abstinence, he had succeeded in entirely destroying the physical desire for alcohol, so that in his waking condition, he felt an absolute repulsion for it. Yet he stated that he still frequently dreamed that he was drinking, and in that dream state he felt the old horrible pleasure in such degradation. Apparently, therefore, during the day, his desire was kept under control by the will, and causal thought forms or passing elementals were unable to make any impression upon it. But when the astral body was liberated in sleep, it escaped to some extent from the domination of the ego and its extreme natural susceptibility, so far reasserted itself that it again responded readily to these baneful influences and imagined itself experiencing once more the disgraceful delights of detestable debauchery. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. <coughs> Excuse me, I have this nagging cough yet. But anyway... Uh, so, essentially, what's being claimed here is things can affect you uh, from an astral perspective, right, in this way. Things like passing thought forms or passing elementals, as it's described here. We've done shows in the past on elementals or elemental spirits, nature spirits, things like that. Uh, all of these ideas, and there's also unnatural elementals or man-made elementals that are acknowledged in some of these teachings, uh, so these things can actually affect people uh, on certain levels in this desire body, this astral body, so to say. Uh, that's what they claim, right? Uh, so it can affect you, and it affects you more when your physical body, when you're sleeping. So this can have an effect on your unconscious mind or your subconscious mind in many ways, and you're more susceptible during this time of sleep, uh, allegedly because of what happens when you sleep uh, with these different bodies or layers of, of bodies uh, from these different planes, as they explain here. But let's continue reading here, because we're going to get to the next part, and uh, we'll wrap it up here pretty soon. The ego. All these different portions of the mechanism are in reality merely instruments of the ego though his control of them is as yet often very imperfect. For it must always be remembered that the ego is himself a developing entity, and that in the case of most of us, he is scarcely more than a germ of what he is to be one day. A stanza in the book of Zion tells us, Those who received but a spark remained destitute of knowledge. The spark burned low. And Madame Blavatsky explains that those who received but a spark constitute the average humanity which have to acquire their intellectuality during the present manvanteric evolution. And that's from The Secret Doctrine. 
Ooh, the secret doctrine. Uh, anyway, going to pause for a moment there. Uh, y- you got to love some of the titles of the stuff they come up with. But uh, at any rate, regardless, like I said, take some of this stuff with a grain of salt, right? And understand that uh, there might be some value in a lot of this information. Uh, so, you know, when we think in those ways, we have to be careful, Uh, so as not to lose sight of the important pieces of information that we could garner from this. Uh, But, uh, you know, by and large, in my view, I think people like Blavatsky uh, had a twisted view on things. But uh, let's continue on. I don't want to get hung up on sidetracks here. I want to stay focused on the uh, reading at hand. In the case of most of them, that spark is still smoldering, and it will be many an age before its slow increase burns it to the stage of steady and brilliant flame. No doubt there are some passages in theosophical literature which seem to imply that our higher ego needs no evolution, being already perfect and godlike on his own plane, but wherever such expressions are used, whatever may be the terminology employed, they must be taken to apply only to the Atma, the true God within us, which is certainly far beyond the necessity of any kind of evolution of which we can know anything. And I'm going to pause there again, folks. Now they're referring to the term that's called the Atma, and this is an Eastern teaching, right? Uh, And like I said, a lot of this stuff take with a grain of salt. This is what they would refer to in more New Agey circles as the higher self. That's the higher self guiding you, right? Uh, So they acknowledge uh, the higher self, uh, which could equate uh, to the idea of the ego, as they say. Uh, But remember, folks, we are all created in the image of God. We are not God ourselves. We can never be God. And, uh, you know, these claims of anything other than that, (laughs) well, let's just say there's there's some faulty uh, lines of thought along with that. Uh, But, you know, that being the case, uh, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater with this stuff. And we'll continue on. The reincarnating ego must undoubted, most undoubtedly does evolve, and the process of his evolution can be very clearly seen by those who have developed clairvoyant vision to the extent necessary for the perception of that which exists on the higher levels of the mental plane. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Now remember, they're always telling you in various of these texts, right, that the uh, you know, they, there's clairvoyance and there's people that have these powers to see into the spiritual realms and they have these perceptions that you don't. And uh, you, there's no way to verify this except through other people that claim they're clairvoyance. Uh, so, you know, who are these people? Well, you know, we get a lot of writers here like Leadbeater who claims to have been clairvoyant, if I'm not mistaken, uh, as well as a lot of these other ones. And they describe what they see. Or this is what they tell you. You have no way to verify this for yourself, right? They could be handing you a total line of BS, and you wouldn't know otherwise or be able to prove or disprove otherwise. Unless, of course, you're clairvoyant yourself. And, you know, are there actually people that become clairvoyant and are able to see these different spiritual things? Well, maybe, maybe not. Who can say for sure, right? 
but by and large, what I've encountered with these different secret society groups is, as always, them dangling this carrot, this special ability, right, to be able to see into other realms and understand things on a on a deeper level, because you'll you'll gain this this uh, vision, this power of clairvoyance or whatever it is. They dangle that carrot before you, but the thing is, you're just never quite good enough to to get that gift, that spiritual sight with a lot of these secret society groups, and it's a control mechanism. Uh, so they're leading you down the rose path, right? The rose garden path with this. Uh, and uh, if you can't verify it yourself, and uh, there's there's really no way to prove or disprove this, it's, it's a matter of, are you going to take their word for it? Now, uh, there are some of them <clears throat> that seem to back up the experiences and observations of others. Now, is this because they've been trained in what to say or what to t tell you or what's, you know, been described to them? Or do they really see this and perceive it and describe the same thing? And see, that's where we have to use a little bit of critical thinking when it comes down to this stuff. Because unless we have this ability ourselves, there's no way to verify or to disprove what they're saying. So therefore, you're just taking it on their word. And if their intention is to mislead you, or they've been misled themselves and are just repeating the talking points that they were given, uh, and they're leading you down the primrose path, then, uh, you know, what, what, what could you make of that? Like I said, I do find some value in this, and I think it gives a better descriptor of how things operate. And there may be some truths underlying some of this, but I heavily distrust whenever they talk about, well, if you observe this through the uh, eyes of the clairvoyant, you can see this and this and that and the other thing. Uh, well, see, here's, here's the problem with that. There's no way to test that, right? <laughs> There's no way for us to test that and see if that holds true or not, if what they're telling you holds true, or if it's just some contrived nonsense. And, and this is where... A lot of this stuff really uh, loses credibility on a lot of levels uh, because they tell you one thing and then they'll tell you, well, you know, th this has been proven by our clairvoyance and our psychics who are able to look into these other realms and see this and that and they've described this and this is what's really operating and going on behind the scenes with it. Uh, and the further you go back into the older teachings of the uh, ancient mystery schools and stuff like this, you do find versions of, of stuff that's similar to this, but uh, when we get forward into the Theosophical Society and these various groups that emerged uh, in the 17 and 1800s, we find distortions of some of the older teachings, inversions of the older teachings, and we could clearly see that uh, somebody's private agenda was being uh, used and elevated by twisting some of these old ideas and uh, turning them into something that they were never intended to be. Uh, so I always caution people when you're looking at this stuff, uh, especially when you go into the theosophical teachings and stuff, much of what they teach has been inverted from uh, what the older teachers were teaching about some of these things. Or the ideas have been misconstrued and steered uh, into something that they never originally meant right? It's all about the interpretation. So uh, much of what we have today in what we would call modern occultism plays upon these same ideas put forth in the mid-1800s here by places like the Theosophical Society. All those ones like Crowley and Blavatsky, 
All of these ideas permeate what is known about this. And if you actually delve deeply into these subjects and go back further in time and look at the original teachings that some of these doctrines these places have put forth are based on, you find that there's a difference in what has been said and what has been uh, uh, explained in the past compared to what has been put forward today in what we would call this these new age circles, right? And this is largely what's been going on with a lot of this stuff. They've taken the ideas, they've manipulated them, twisted them around to suit their own agendas, and have leveraged some of these tried and true principles to bring about the agendas they want and do the things that they want for their own personal gain. And this is the antithesis of what was originally intended by the alchemists as the great work. But this is what's been done, and this is what we largely have today. When you look at these things, this is what you will find. It always invariably ties back to these various groups that emerged in the 17 and 1800s and have been brought forward from places like uh, the Rosicrucians and further back, the Templars. And all of the ideas, uh, the foundational ideas for some of these teachings, have all been twisted and manipulated through time to bring about special interests for special interest groups. Uh, so that's what's been done here with a lot of this stuff. But uh, like I said, I know that was a long side tangent, but I think it's an important one to get in there. Uh, but at any rate, understand this is information. Uh, keep it in your back pocket. If you find it useful for understanding something else later, that's great, right? If you think there's nothing to it, well, hang on to it anyway, because you never know what you're going to encounter. Uh, that might change your mind on that. Uh, like I said, I, I do find value in some of it, and I think there's kernels of truth to some of it, but you have to be careful because like anything else that's been handled by these people in positions of power that brought this forward through time, it's been manipulated, right? It's been twisted in many ways, much like all our modern religions and everything have as well. Uh, so, you know, it's it's hard to get to the meat of the matter and find the truth uh, within things, but... Uh, Understand, there's always some kernel of value within any of these writings. And that's why uh, we're exploring this. And I find the, uh, the idea of the dream state and stuff like that fascinating. As before remarked, it is of the matter of that plane, if we may venture to still call it matter, that the comparatively permanent causal body which he carries with him from birth to birth until the end of the human stage of his evolution is composed. But though every individualized being must necessarily have such a body, since it is the possession of it which constitutes individualization, its appearance is by no means similar in all cases. In fact, in the average unevolved man, it is barely distinguishable at all, even by those who have the sight which unlocks for them the secrets of that plane, for it is a mere colorless film, just sufficient apparently to hold itself together and make a reincarnating individuality but no more. And it says here, see man visible and invisible. Uh, and it's another book written by Leadbeater here. Uh, and uh, of course, he's referring here to what they call the ego, right? Or the auric egg, the mind body, so to say. So this is the actual real vehicle of individualization, according to the theosophists here. And this is the foundation upon which the other bodies, the astral body, the etheric body, and the physical body are built. Uh, so it's it's the framework, stepping down through the particular planes of uh, of manifestation, so to say, here. 
Uh, but let's read on here, and we're almost finished. I'll wrap it up here soon. Um, so let's continue on. As soon, however, as the man begins to develop in spirituality or even higher intellect, a change takes place. The real individual then begins to have a persisting character of his own, apart from that, molded in each of his personalities in turn by training and surrounding circumstances, and this character shows itself in the size, color, luminosity, and definiteness of the causal body, just as that of the personality shows itself in the mind body, except that this higher vehicle is naturally subtler and more beautiful. In one other respect, also, it happily differs from the bodies below it, and that is that in any ordinary circumstances, no evil of any kind can manifest through it. The worst of men can commonly show himself on the plane only as an entirely undeveloped entity. His vices, even though continued through life after life, cannot soil that higher sheath. They can only make it more and more difficult to develop in the opposite virtues. And I'm going to pause there, folks. <coughs> this is what's referred to as the golden fleece. Okay, this is the uh, mind body that, uh, or, you know, as they call it here, uh, that cannot manifest evil, right? It can only manifest the good, but sometimes if you continue in your sin uh, from life to life, as they claim here in the Theosophical Society, uh, then you it just makes it harder for you to put on uh, those virtues in this, this body. And this hinders your further evolution, as they call it. Uh, so... I know these are a lot of big ideas and convoluted ideas for sure, especially if you come at things from a Christian perspective. <coughs> they talk about incarnation and reincarnation and all of these various facets of things and that, uh, you know, you exist in this cyclical nature uh, where uh, you reincarnate over and over again and that basically this auric egg, uh, this facet of you, this mind-body, so to say, uh, this individualization, this is what you truly are, and that it manifests taking on the garments of the lower planes that it steps through when it manifests here physically. So that being the case, it's connected, but it's also disconnected in a way as far as sensation and stuff like that goes and experience. So these are some convoluted ideas, I know, and it might be a bridge too far for some people. But understand, this is what uh, people in positions of power in this world honestly, firmly believe and act upon. And the things they do to act upon these beliefs will affect us. I can't, uh, you know, emphasize that point enough. Uh, so even if you think this is total hooey and nonsense, keep the information in your back pocket because you might need it later. It might make sense to you later as to the why certain things get done in this world uh, by certain people and certain groups, it, it comes back full circle at some point, doesn't it? Where you look upon something and then you understand. If you understand the principles that they believe, you know why they act the way they do. And this is the important part here. Uh, but let's continue on because, uh, like I said, I think there's some kernels of truth that hold true here about human consciousness and, you know, the various ways that it manifests and how, uh, when we're in the sleep state, how uh, things happen, how dreams can be interpreted, how information uh, can be interpreted 
uh, through this mechanism that uh, Leadbeater talks about here. Uh, it's it's a mechanism of perception, so to say, uh, through these different planes, right? So that's what we're talking about, and it's it's not a very developed sense for most of us, and this is what they claim. But you do perceive different energies, um, in a sense, from these different manifestations in different planes and within the physical world here. And we're more susceptible to receiving these sensations from that when we're in our sleep state. And that's that's the important thing here. So this is kind of a rough overview and explanation of the possibilities as to why and how we experience certain dreams and certain things within our dreams, perceptions within our dreams, because it's based upon different energies that we may encounter. Uh, let's continue on, though. On the other hand, perseverance along right lines soon tells upon the causal body, and in the case of a pupil who has made some progress on the path of holiness, it is a sight wonderful and lovely beyond all earthly conception, while that of an adept is a magnificent sphere of living light whose radiant glory no words can ever tell. He who has even once seen so sublime a spectacle as this, and can also see around him individuals at all stages of development between that and the colorless film of the ordinary person, can never feel any doubt as to the evolution of the reincarnating ego. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So they're saying the ultimate manifestation here would be to be an adept in one of these secret orders uh, where you get this spiritual sight of clairvoyance and you're able to see in these other realms because then your reincarnating ego your causal body your mind body will be a spectacular sight uh for people that could see in those realms you see because you're so far superior to the unthinking cattle around you. That, that's the impression they give you, isn't it? That's, that's what they really think of you. It, it, you're, you're the profane, see? If you don't belong to their secret society group, if you don't belong to their uh, brotherhood, if you're not initiated in the order, you don't even have a soul, according to some of the teachings that they give. And therefore, you're not worthy. You're just an animal, just a human resource. That's how they view us. Uh, but uh, anyway, enough with the sidetracks here. I want to uh, wrap it up here within the next few minutes. So we'll continue on. The grasp which the ego has of his various instruments, and therefore his influence over them, is naturally small in his earlier stages. Neither his mind nor his passions are thoroughly under his control. Indeed, the average man makes almost no effort to control them, but allows himself to be swept hither and thither, just as his lower thoughts or desires suggest. Consequently, in sleep, the different parts of the mechanism which we have mentioned are very apt to act almost entirely on their own account, without reference to him. And the stage of his spiritual advancement is one of the factors that we have to take into account in considering the question of dreams. It is also important for us to realize the part which this ego takes in the formation of our conceptions of external objects. We must remember that what the vibrations of the nerve threads present to the brain are merely impressions, and it is the work of the ego acting through the mind to classify, combine, and rearrange them. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So what they're saying is thought. The idea of thought or perception uh, crosses across multiple planes of existence. 
right? That the ego acting through the mind, see, this is the stepping down process from the ego, the mind, it classifies the information it receives through the etheric, through the physical, through the astral, all these things, combines and rearranges them, and gives this as a physical impulse to your brain as far as a perception of what's going on. Uh, so this is how uh, perception manifests, according to them. And I think there might be something to this idea, right? Because there are different energetic principles that affect us uh, that are not really visible or measurable in that kind of a sense. Things like intuition, things like that. How do we have that? Well, there's no physical way to objectively measure that or define that, is there? But yet we see it as being a true subjective thing that we've all experienced. Deja vu is something similar, isn't it? Or being able to know what's going to happen next, like you've experienced this thing before. Um, that kind of thing. We all have these experiences and this might be some sort of explanation to that. Uh, so, you know, what we perceive in different realms, so to say, can be uh, imparted to our mind as a type of perception. So, uh, and especially in a dream state. And this is where, uh, you know, man often has um, visions and stuff like that is in this, this semi-sleep state between... Uh, being awake and fully asleep where we we sometimes have visions or or see apparitions and things like that that's a common commonly described thing uh, so it's these doors of perception so to say these uh, this this gateway process between uh, our sensibilities within the natural world or in the physical world so to say and uh, these other worlds uh, so we have some crossover in those types of uh, different uh, levels of consciousness so let's continue on i don't want to get too hung up on sidetracks <coughs> excuse me for example when i look out the window and i see a house and a tree i instantly recognize them for what they are yet the information really conveyed to me by my eyes falls very far short of such recognition what actually happens is that certain rays of light that is currents of ether vibrating at certain definite rates are reflected from those objects and strike the retina of my eye and the sensitive nerve threads duly report those vibrations to the brain but what is the tale they have to tell? All the information that they really transmit is that in a particular direction, there are certain varied patches of color bounded by more or less definite outlines. It is the mind which from its past experience is able to decide that one particular square white object is a house and another rounded green one is a tree and that they are both probably of such and such a size and at such and such a distance from me. A person who, having been born blind, obtains his sight by means of an operation, does not for some time know what are the objects he sees, nor can he judge their distance from him. The same is true of a baby, for it may often be seen grasping at attractive objects, such as the moon, for example, which are far out of its reach. But as it grows up, it unconsciously learns by repeated experiences to judge instinctively the probable distance and size of the form it sees. Yet even grown-up people may very readily be deceived as to the distance and therefore the size of any unfamiliar object, especially if seen in a dim or uncertain light. 
We see, therefore, that mere vision is by no means sufficient for accurate perception, but that the discrimination of the ego, acting through the mind, must be brought to bear upon what is seen. And furthermore, we see that this discrimination is not an inherent instinct of the mind, perfect from the first, but is the result of the unconscious comparison of a number of experiences, points which must be carefully borne in mind when we come to the next division of our subject. So, going to pause right there. <coughs> this is an important idea, okay? So, essentially it's saying the ego, or you know what we would call maybe the higher self, whatever you want to view this as, right? Uh, that the... Uh, the, the the theosophists here refer to as the ego or you know the the causal body so to say um what this does is this helps with the interpretation of these sensations that we receive from these various worlds uh, from these various planes of existence and how this manifests in a physical reaction of a perception in our brain okay uh, so this is an important idea, and that this faculty can uh, potentially uh, be manipulated. Well, not just manipulated, but also it can be, uh, it could give you different sensations or perceptions when you are in a sleep state, right? So that's the important point here. So this is one of the things where uh, different types of dreams can possibly be explained in various ways, or what exactly dreams are. So the next portion here says the condition of sleep. And we're only going to read a very short uh, portion of this because I do need to wrap it up here in the next couple minutes. But uh, this is what happens, okay? So this is how the theosophists explain sleeping and dreaming and all of those various things and how consciousness uh, reacts to this and how this manifests. So let's read on here. The condition of sleep. Clairvoyant observation bears abundant testimony to the fact that when a man falls into deep slumber, the higher principles in their astral vehicle almost invariably withdraw from the body and hover in its immediate neighborhood. Indeed, it is the process of this withdrawal which we commonly call going to sleep. In considering the phenomena of dreams, therefore, we have to bear in mind this rearrangement and see how it affects both the ego and his various mechanisms. In the case we are about to examine, then, we assume that our subject is in a deep sleep. The physical body, including that finer portion of it, which is often called the etheric double, lying quietly on the bed, while the ego, in its astral body, floats with equal tranquility just above it. What, under these circumstances, will be the condition and the consciousness of these several principles? Well, number one, the brain. When the ego has thus for the time resigned the control of his brain, it does not therefore become entirely unconscious as one would perhaps expect. It is evident from various experiments that the physical body has a certain dim consciousness of its own, quite apart from that of the real self and apart also from the mere aggregate of the consciousness of its individualized cells. 
The writer has several times observed an effect of this consciousness when watching the extraction of a tooth under the influence of gas. The body uttered a confused cry and raised its hands vaguely toward the mouth, clearly showing that it to some extent felt the wrench. Yet when the ego resumed possession 20 seconds later, he declared that he had felt absolutely nothing of the operation. Of course I am aware that such movements are ordinarily attributed to reflex action, and that people are in the habit of, ex of accepting that statement as though it were a real explanation, not seeing that, as employed here, it is a mere phase, or a mere phrase, sorry, and explains nothing whatever. The consciousness, then, such as it is, is still working in the physical brain, although the ego floats above it, but its grasp is, of course, far feebler than that of the man himself, and consequently, all those causes which were mentioned above, as likely to affect the action of the brain, are now capable of influencing it to a very much greater extent. The slightest alteration in the supply or circulation of the blood now produces grave irregularities of action, and this is why indigestion, as affecting the flow of the blood, so frequently causes troubled sleep or bad dreams. But even when undisturbed, this strange dim consciousness has many remarkable peculiarities. Its action seems to be a great extent automatic, and the results are usually incoherent, senseless, and hopelessly confused. It seems unable to apprehend an idea except in the form of a scene in which it is itself an actor, and therefore all stimuli, whether from within or without, are forthwith translated into perceptual images. It is incapable of grasping abstract ideas or memories as such. They immediately become imaginary percepts. If, for example, the idea of glory could be suggested to that consciousness, it could take shape only as a vision of some glorious being appearing before the dreamer. If a thought of hatred somehow came across it, it could be appreciated only as a scene in which some imaginary actor showed violent hatred towards the sleeper. Again, every local direction of thought becomes for it an absolute spatial transportation. If during our waking hours we think of China or Japan, our thought is at once, as it were, in those countries, but nevertheless we are perfectly aware that our physical bodies are exactly where they were a moment before. In the condition of consciousness, which we are considering, however, there is no discriminating ego to balance the cruder impressions, and consequently, any passing thought suggesting China and Japan could image itself only as an actual, instantaneous transportation to those countries, and the dreamer would suddenly find himself there, surrounded by as much of the appropriate circumstance as he happened to be able to remember. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. So... This is all about uh, perception, right? Perception being reality in many ways. So you see here, in this uh, sleep state, uh, if you are, were thinking of China or Japan, like in a conscious state you think of China or Japan, you understand you're, you're not there. But in this sleep state, or uh, more aptly, uh, in the astral state, uh, you would physically travel there in the astral uh, so that's one of the things, one of the contentions that's being raised here. Uh, like I said, take some of this stuff with a grain of salt. Maybe there's something to it, maybe not. There's no way to really prove or disprove it, though, is there? But 
<coughs> at the end of the day, I think it's an interesting analysis of sleep and dreaming. Uh, let's continue on, and I'll wrap it up here. It has often been noted that while startling transitions of this sort are extremely frequent in dreams, the sleeper never seems at the time to feel any surprise at their suddenness. This phenomenon is easily explicable when examined by the light of such observations as we are considering, for in the mere consciousness of the physical brain there is nothing capable of such a feeling as surprise. It simply perceives the pictures as they appear before it. It has no power to judge either of their sequence or their lack of that quality. Another source of the extraordinary confusion visible in this half-consciousness is the manner in which the law of the association of ideas works in it. We are all familiar with the wonderful instantaneous action of this law in waking life. We know how a chance word, a strain of music, even the scent of a flower may be sufficient to bring back to the mind a chain of long-forgotten memories. Now, in the sleeping brain, this law is as active as ever, but it acts under curious limitations. Every such association of ideas, whether abstract or concrete, becomes a mere combination of images gonna pause for a second there folks remember I, I'm put emphasis earlier on the idea of the image and this is a hugely important thing that uh, really requires more study but uh, that's what's being said here let's read that again every such association of ideas whether abstract or concrete becomes a mere combination of images and as our association of ideas is often merely by synchronism as of events which though really entirely unconnected happen to us in succession it may readily be imagined that the most inextricable confusion of these images is of frequent occurrence while their number is practically infinite as whatever can be dragged from the immense stores of memory appears in pictorial form. Naturally enough, a succession of such pictures is rarely perfectly recoverable by memory, since there is no order to help in recovery. Just as it may be easy enough to remember in waking life a connected sentence or verse of poetry, even when heard only once, whereas without some system of mnemonics, it would be almost impossible to recollect accurately a mere jumble of meaningless words under similar circumstances. Another peculiarity of this curious consciousness of the brain is that while singularly sensitive to the slightest external influences, such as sounds or touches, it yet magnifies and distorts them to an almost incredible degree. All writers on dreams give examples of this, and indeed, some will probably be within the knowledge of everyone who has paid any attention to the subject. Among the stories most commonly told is one of a man who had a painful dream of being hanged because his shirt collar was too tight. Another man magnified the prick of a pin into a fatal stab received in a duel. Another translated a slight pinch into the bite of a wild beast. Mari relates that part of the rail at the head of his bed once became detached and fell across his neck, so as just to touch it lightly. Yet this trifling contact produced a terrible dream of the French Revolution in which he seemed to himself to perish by the guillotine. Another writer tells us that he frequently awaked from sleep with a confused remembrance of dreams full of noise, of loud voices and thunderous sounds, and was entirely unable for a long time to discover their origin. But 
At last he succeeded in tracing them to the murmurous sound, made in the ear, perhaps by the circulation of the blood, when it is laid on the pillow, much as a similar but louder murmur may be heard by holding a shell to the ear. It must by this time be evident that even from this bodily brain alone there comes enough confusion and exaggeration to account for many of the dream phenomena, but this is only one of the factors that we have to take into consideration. So the next section here talks about the etheric brain. We're going to pick that up on a later stream. Okay, because some of these ideas uh, of the etheric brain are important. So I'm going to do a part two of this, uh, this uh, broadcast here, where we will pick up on the etheric brain. Uh, because a lot of this is too lengthy to go through in one sitting here. So that being the case, I'm going to call it a night here. And uh, thank you all for tuning in. And I hope uh, that you found value in this. And we will continue with part two. And I'll put that together within the next couple days and do another broadcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, have a good night, folks. Take care out there.
Introducing the new home for free speech, Free World FM, the alternative to the alternative. Keep on talking in the free world. That's freeworld.fm. Coming soon.